my rootedness in relationships with migrants is one of the reasons that I decided to apply for the executive director role. And it's something that I intend to, to carry forward in my leadership. And I hope that as the communities look towards me and, and see me in this leadership role, uh, rather than a sense of distance of, oh, that's so great what Joanna does, or that's so great what KBI does, I hope that what they can hear is the invitation and say, I could do that in five years. <laughs> I could be there in 10 years, uh, and that there's a closeness because of that. From the Jesuits of Canada and the United States, this is AMDG. I'm your guest host, Meg Ann Leipsch. My guest today is Joanna Williams. She's the new executive director of Kino Border Initiative, a Jesuit-run ministry that accompanies migrants on both sides of the U.S.-Mexico border. Williams has the kind of energy that sucks you in. Just talking to her is like getting a jolt of motivation. She's passionate about social change and justice, but she's also pragmatic. One of the things that stood out to me in my interview with her is the way she talks about leadership. She views her work at Kino like a global invitation. It's not just her work or the work of 22 staff members. Everyone has a responsibility, a share in the mission. Too often, I think, we look at leaders like Williams and say, I couldn't do that. But Williams insists that's not true. Because change is powered by communities, we need the strength and persistence of many to achieve justice. Joanna, thank you for taking the time to be with us today. I want to start in the past. How did you first become interested in migration and issues of migrant rights? Yeah, so I was um, born in Denver, Colorado, uh, and grew up in there's a lot of different immigrant communities in Denver. Uh, I went to high school and even middle school with some people whose families had immigrated from Mexico. And at the time, I didn't really understand what that meant. <laughs> But I would go over to their houses and I celebrated with them when their mom got a green card, even though I didn't know what a green card was or, or the impact that it was, had to be undocumented. The other uh, piece of my high school experience that was transformational for me is I had, like many high schoolers, I had mandatory service hours uh, that I had to do. And I ended up signing up to tutor refugees in English. And so every Saturday morning, I would go to the basement of an apartment building in the suburbs of Denver and uh, tutor women from Iraq and Somalia and the Congo uh, and in that process get a little glimpse into their experience. Uh, so when I moved I ended up going to Georgetown University and my initial inclination was I'm going to go and solve all of the world's problems. <laughs> um, you know, I'm going to fix the conflicts in, in the Congo and, and in Somalia. Uh, it's certainly been a journey of humility <laughs> to, to recognize uh, that our invitation is this invitation to each step that God calls us to, and not so necessarily to be the, to come in and uh, solve the world's problems, <laughs> but to continue to accompany the immigrants and refugees that I met when I was a kid or when I was in high school, as well as those that I got to know throughout my college experience and beyond. Uh, but I would say that those two experiences were formative to me in just the relationship building uh, with people who are in a, a space of immigration. As you mentioned, you graduated from Georgetown School of Foreign Service. You then went on to receive a master's in public policy, and you conducted Fulbright research on migration patterns in Mexico. How have these educational experiences shaped your understanding of migration? 
how do they influence your work today? I'd say that I came into Georgetown, as I mentioned, with this kind of passion and this sense of justice. And Georgetown was such a space that refined my understanding. Uh, and I'm really thankful for extracurricular activities at Georgetown, but also just what I learned in the classroom uh, from the faculty, faculty like um, Susan Martin, who's uh, one of the world's experts on, on immigration and, and refugee issues. Uh, they gave me this kind of subject matter expertise that I still draw on today. Uh, and so I took that of what, coming out of Georgetown, understanding some of the dynamics of immigration and the immigration system. And then what my master's in public policy helped me understand was then now how do we, how do we go about creating change? Uh, so what are the tools for evaluation? Uh, how do we affect the policy process? And I'm, I'm grateful for the master's in public policy because I think it's made me a smarter advocate. Uh, and I think that people in Nogales, the migrants that we serve at, at the Kino Border Initiative, they deserve that we be as strategic as possible um, because they're trusting us to accompany them well. And so it's a matter of us re reciprocating that trust by becoming, by being careful and thoughtful and building our own skills so that we can really try to uh, work towards more humane and just policy. For the last six years, you served as the Director of Education and Advocacy at Kino Border Initiative. Can you describe the typical day at Kino? What are some of the key services that Kino provides to migrants at the border? Well, in my six years, the, the answer to that question has changed dramatically. Uh, so when I first came in, and I was actually first at KBI in 2011 as a full-time volunteer, and I participated in an immersion experience here when I was a student at Georgetown. Um, but since I've been employed at KBI, we started, when I started out, we were in the comedor, uh, which is a dining room, a very small uh, space in which even there we were able to provide a variety of services, but we're mostly focused on responding to immediate humanitarian needs within that space, in addition to our education and advocacy work that, that largely happened uh, in that space, but in connection with other communities. So there we were providing basic food, clothing, uh, partnering with other organizations to offer checks and medical services. Now for over a year, we've been in a larger building, uh, which is our migrant aid center that we inaugurated last year. And even though we haven't been able to bring online all of the services we'd hoped for because of the pandemic, we have dramatically expanded the support that we can provide individuals uh, as part of that transition to, into the new building, but also as a part of an expansion of staff and partnerships over the course of the last few years. Um, so we now offer legal services in both in Mexico and in the United States. In Mexico, we have a Mexican attorney on staff who can help people with their asylum process or with filing police reports. And in the US, we partner with the Florence Immigrant and Refugee Rights Project to provide uh, assistance for individuals seeking asylum. Uh, we also, as of this fall, now have a psychologist on staff, uh, so we're able to offer that psychological support that was a huge gap for us in the past. Uh, and all of this, of course, while still doing the, the basic work of, of providing meals and of providing clothing. Um, but I think it's what's extraordinary about KBI is the creativity with which we're able to respond to individual circumstances. Uh, so we listen very carefully to the migrants that we receive, and we're constantly reflecting on what, what more can we do? How can we better accompany and some, some of these new services, the legal services, the psychological services, uh, have come out of that reflection. 
And how has the pandemic impacted your services and programs? It depends. So our humanitarian services are almost entirely in person because they have to be, <laughs> because that's the most effective way to, to be engaged in humanitarian services. Uh, our education programming is mostly virtual at this point. Um, it was actually Loyola Academy in Chicago that right when the pandemic hit, made that suggestion to us. They said, well, why don't you do virtual immersions? And we've really been heartened by uh, school's interest in them and also their patience with us as we <laughs> work through what's the best way to do a virtual immersion. Uh, and in the advocacy space, we're, we're also engaged more virtually, which I think opens up unique opportunities. Uh, it means that there's sometimes more space to meet with congressional offices because we don't just have to fly to D.C. We can do a Zoom meeting with uh, Congressman O'Halloran from, from Nogales itself. Uh, and it's, it's in some ways a better way to give migrants a platform uh, because they oftentimes are not able to fly to D.C. Uh, so our education and advocacy has moved more virtual, though there's still some in-person components, and our humanitarian services remain in-person. What are some of the roadblocks facing migrants and asylum seekers at the border right now, and how does Kino help? So what we've seen over the last course of the last several years has been uh, essentially t erosion <laughs> towards complete elimination of access to asylum. So people who are fleeing violence uh, are don't have an opportunity to seek asylum right now at the border. Uh, and that's been building over the course of a, a couple of years. What that means for people uh, is that individuals who are arriving, whether that's from other parts of Mexico or from Central America or Venezuela and Cuba, um, they arrive to Nogales perhaps with this intention of being able to seek asylum in the U.S. and um, quickly move on. You know, Nogales is very few people's final destination. And yet, Folks have been in Nogales now for a year, a year and a half, uh, some even longer, as they've been stranded in this state of limbo. Uh, so we at Kino Border Initiative used to be a place where people transitioned through very quickly. Uh, we used to serve primarily deported folks. They would arrive, they'd receive our services maybe a day or two, and then move on. And now we're, because of these policy changes, we're accompanying people in just a very different modality, uh, where now as they're in the city for a longer term, they need um, additional support, for example, in finding jobs, uh, in finding some safe housing. Uh, and I'd also, uh, so I, there's a lot of new challenges that emerge from that, um, but the opportunity as well is that we're able to have deeper relationships and the migrants themselves in Nogales have organized to, to fight for their own rights <laughs> through the Save Asylum movement. So it's, it's not a situation that we want to be in. And at the same time, uh, because of people's persistence and determination and sense of justice, they have been able to make the most of that circumstance and, and invited us as KBI to come alongside them as they try to lead for change from the border. Kino works both in Nogales, Mexico and Nogales, Arizona. Why is this binational cooperation important to Kino's mission? What are some of the challenges of working in a shared border space? So I'd say that our binationality is our, our greatest opportunity, but also our greatest challenge. Uh, and the reason that we're binational is that it's one thing to, in our advocacy space or in our education space, to speak about church teachings and how we need to, or you know, the recent encyclical, how we're all brothers, uh, and, and there's how there's this global fraternity. 
in some ways it's easy to say that. Uh, what's difficult is how do we work that out in our own organization? And I think that that makes Pinot more authentic. <laughs> the fact that we can't just say you know, we should transcend borders or we should collaborate between the US and Mexico, but we have to do that in a day in and day out basis and identify where where is the inequality between these countries affecting us internally. Uh, and so that allows us to be more credible, it allows us to be more sincere, it allows us to be more sustainable in the way that we work towards change. And at the same time, it means that we're navigating a lot more cultural obstacles, we're navigating more communication challenges. Uh, and we, we feel that the time that we put into that is worth it, uh, because it's not just about what Kino can do, you know, what, what programming are we able to, to develop, because we could more efficiently develop programming if we were only <laughs> existed in one country. Um, but it's it's how are we a model for what our societies could look like. Uh, and that takes more time and sometimes doesn't bear fruit as quickly. Uh, but ultimately, is I think the pro approach that we're invited to and the approach that, frankly, Pope Francis is inviting the church to as well. <laughs> On March 1st, you assumed your new role as the executive director of KBI. Since KBI opened its doors in 2009, this position was held by Father Sean Carroll. This means you're the first woman and first layperson to serve as KBI's executive director. What unique perspectives do you bring to the position? Yeah, I'm, well, first of all, um, really grateful for this opportunity, grateful for the leadership of Sean, who has uh, helped found the organization uh, and has brought KBI through so much growth. Uh, it's it's not easy to step into this role as a laywoman and and especially as it's only been occupied by one person before me. Um, I think that as a layperson, I'm able to have a unique relationship with the migrant women, men, women, and children that we receive, um, because although there's great inequalities between our two countries, we do have some commonalities in the challenges <laughs> that we face. You know, I have a five-month-old daughter, uh, and so when just last week when we received a, a family with a one-month-old, uh, and I was able to give that family, my daughter's clothes, uh, there's a certain connection that I can have with her and a certain uh, empathy towards her situation um, that I think is a, a unique gift. And it's my rootedness in relationships with migrants is one of the reasons that I decided to apply for the executive director role. And it's something that I intend to, to carry forward in my leadership. Um, I think the other way that I can occupy this role that's a little bit different is it's too easy for people in our society to feel distant from priests, uh, to say, oh, you know, that's great what Father Sean did, but I could never do that uh, because I'm not a priest. And obviously the invitation in our church is for all of us to discern our vocation. Uh, and I do hope that young people are discerning the priesthood and I hope they're discerning religious life. And I also hope that young people who are not discerning the priest or have decided that they're not called to the priesthood or not called to re religious life, can still see how they can center their lives around the work of a faith that do, does justice. And I hope that as the communities look towards me and, and see me in this leadership role, uh, rather than a sense of distance of, oh, that's so great what Joanna does, or that's so great what KBI does, I hope that what they can hear is the invitation and say, I could do that in five years. <laughs> I could be there in 10 years, uh, and that there's a closeness because of that. Because ultimately, the work of KBI is not just the work of the 22 people that we have on staff. Uh, it's the work of enormous community, uh, which stretches to Jesuit institutions in the US and in Mexico and, and in other countries. And so I hope in my leadership role, I'm able to invite 
people into that engagement and give them a sense of possibility and recognize that, that they have a responsibility in this work as well. I know you're still new to the position, but how do you hope to see Kino grow under your leadership? I've already spoken about the incredible work of KBI, how much we've grown in the last couple of years, and I want to sustain that. Um, I think there's we can continue to adapt to this new reality of longer-term accompaniment. Um, so, for example, we've started the Livelihoods Project that's accompanying people who settle in Nogales, Sonora. Really want to invest more energy and resources and and strategic thinking to that piece of KBI's mission, uh, to not just serving people in a moment of transition, but really serving people in a, in a place of settlement or resettlement. Uh, and that's one of the programs that, or the one of the opportunities that KBI has. Another area um, is it's more of a way that we approach the work. Uh, I think we as KBI can be more strategic in the way that we evaluate our programs and the way that we're accountable to the community. Uh, that's, for example, in our education programs, we have we welcome down immersion groups <laughs> to, to educational experiences in this COVID world. We've welcomed people virtually. And then we evaluate what do they do when they go back to their communities? Uh, how are they working towards change? What are the, the fruits of that uh, educational program? We at KBI could be doing that for all of our programs. Uh, so. For us, the measure of success isn't the number of meals that we serve, because we our goal is to serve zero meals. <laughs> our goal is to not exist as an organization. And at the same time, I do want to have a more rigorous look towards evaluation of our humanitarian services uh, so that we can think about what does success look like and how are we uh, going back to that so that we can do more as an organization, because the migrants in Nogales do deserve the very, very best. And part of that evaluation is accountability to migrants themselves. Uh, so the question that I want to live with in this role is, how are we letting the migrants that we accompany in Nogales lead our strategic decisions and lead our evaluation? And how are we ultimately accountable to them? Uh, and I think that can happen in ad hoc ways, but also can happen structurally, uh, because that's the way that we're going to be able to work more deeply, not just adding programs per se, but taking the programs that we have uh, and rooting them more deeply in the community and approaching them more strategically. Over the last four years, migration policy became increasingly hostile and unwelcoming at the U.S.-Mexico border. Policies like Remain in Mexico forced migrants to wait in Mexico while their asylum applications were being processed in the U.S. And then in March of last year, a CDC order shut down all non-essential travel at the border, which included asylum seekers. What are the conditions on the border right now? How have these policies impacted the people you work with at Kino? So there's a, you mentioned an alphabet soup of policies, but, but ultimately what it is is an overarching policy of exclusion uh, and a policy of pushing people into deeper and deeper desperation uh, with the hope of deterring them from seeking protection or seeking opportunity in the U.S. And what that means in, in Nogales is that every day that these policies are in effect is another day 
that kids miss out on education. These are kids who have been out of school for, in many cases, a year and a half or two years. Uh, every day that these policies are in place is a day that people don't get the medical care that they need, uh, that folks with diabetes or, or uh, pregnant women aren't getting adequate services. Um, every day these policies are in place, there's another day that families are separated, uh, where maybe there's a husband in, in the United States and the mom and the kid are here in Nogales and they have no opportunity for reunification. Uh, so that's what it practically means in the day in and day out sense uh, for the families that we accompany. Uh, and it means that, that people are faced by impossible decisions. Uh, so people have to decide, do I stay here knowing that I don't have a place to live, <laughs> knowing that I could it, am ro will be robbed on a regular basis in the streets of Nogales, if, if not uh, face other dramatic violence, uh, or do I attempt to get into the United States through other means uh, and assume the risk there? Uh, it's last year was the deadliest year uh, for many, for almost a decade on the Arizona desert because people were trying to find safety <laughs> and trying to find opportunity. And the fact that people are willing to risk their lives to do so really illustrates the dramatic circumstances that they're fleeing. In his first days in office, President Biden ended Remain in Mexico, and he has proposed significant reforms to U.S. immigration policy. Right now, KBI is leading a 100-day campaign to advocate for federal reforms. Can you tell us about this campaign? What policies are you advocating for? So our hope um, as we move into the Biden administration, there's a lot that the administration is committed to and uh, these vast visions <laughs> that they've put forward. Uh, we really want to push for practical action that benefits people in Nogales, Mexico. Uh, so one area of the 100 Days campaign, which we just concluded toward the, the first phase at the end of February, uh, we were focusing on restoring access to asylum. Uh, and there've been, there's been progress when it comes to access for people who are under MPP, but the vast majority of the people that KBI serves still have no access <laughs> to asylum at the border. And so we need to push for concrete change and urgently in that area. Uh, the second area is to bring more accountability to Customs and Border Protection so that there are fewer abuses of migrants by agents and that when abuses are committed, agents are held responsible. Uh, so we invite you to join us. That's that's the phase that we're in right now, focusing on physical abuse and verbal abuse and all the different ways that migrants suffer in these interactions. And then our third phase of the campaign is uh, focused on the people who have been deported under the Trump administration and who've been deported away from their families. So uh, we worked together a couple of years ago with Center for Migration Studies to publish a report called Communities in Crisis, and the Jesuit Conference was uh, the Office of Justi Justice and Ecology was a part of that report as well, uh, looking at this dramatic effect on families and communities when deportations happen. Well, those people still are alive. <laughs> They're still in Mexico uh, or in Central America trying to get back to their family members. Uh, so the third phase of our campaign is focused on, on their experiences and on this right to return, this right to reunification. A dad that's been, that was deported a away from his kids under the Trump administration uh, should still be considered by the Obama or by the Biden administration. Just because it happened a year ago doesn't mean that it's not relevant uh, to Biden's policies right now. Uh, so we invite people to um, sign up to, to get our updates from the 100 Days campaign. 
uh, and you'll get a weekly story, a weekly prayer, and a weekly action invite uh, so that you can be engaged in solidarity with migrants at the border. Um, and since this is uh, March 10th, I do want to put an a invitation for one specific action you can think about tomorrow. Uh, so we, at this, we have the 100 Days campaign, but we also have this more sustained Save Asylum campaign focusing on restoring access to asylum. Uh, and we have asked Secretary Mayorkas to meet with migrants at the border and hear their concerns about access to asylum. And tomorrow we're having a call-in day uh, where we're asking people to contact uh, DHS to ask when the secretary is going to set up that meeting. Uh, so we'd invite you to, to um, you can look at our website or our social media for more information, but please consider taking action tomorrow uh, to stand in solidarity with migrants at the border and ensure that they have a platform for their voices to be heard. You mentioned earlier that Kino is working to develop long-term contact with migrant communities in Nogales, Mexico, especially with migrants who have been deported from the U.S. or who are unable to enter into the U.S. As Biden attempts to roll back some of the more restrictive Trump-era policies, and as more migrants and asylum seekers are allowed into the U.S., how will that impact the community in Nogales, Mexico? I think it's going to depend a lot on, on individuals and on and circumstances. Many people, their ultimate goal or the, their hope, initial intention may have been to go to the United States, um, but that's not uh, the path for everyone. And uh, even before the Trump administration came into effect, we were seeing more and more people settle in Mexico, so more and more asylum seekers who settled in Mexico instead of going to the United States. So I don't think that this new administration will necessarily change that uh, approach or change that trend. In fact, this um, Livelihoods Project was first conceived before we even worked very much with asylum seekers. So we were first thinking about it in the context of folks deported from the U.S. So people, for example, deported from Arizona who want to stay close to where their kids are, uh, but don't, can't go up to Phoenix, but at least if they're living in Nogales, they, their kids could come down and visit them. Uh, so the, I don't see... I wish that I could envision a world of policy in, in which it wasn't necessary and in which we wouldn't have deportations, we wouldn't uh, have families separated. But being realistic, even if the Biden administration takes some steps to address some of these uh, injustices, we're still going to have many people who either are forced to stay or in a few circumstances choose to stay in Nogales, Sonora, and we want to do a better job of accompanying them. What do people misunderstand about immigration policy issues? And how can education and advocacy in the context of an organization like Kino inform and maybe transform public opinion? I think one big understanding, and I, I think this is not just the public writ large, but sometimes is even um, immigrant advocacy groups themselves. <laughs> I think of this false dichotomy between within the United States and the border as if uh, you know, we, can, we can have a certain policy when it comes to within the U.S., and then uh, there's a whole different approach when it comes to the border. Uh, border communities are part of the United States, <laughs> and the border is an interconnected, rich place in and of itself. Uh, it's not just a, a dividing line between two countries. And so I think we need to have a more holistic approach within the general public, but even within uh, organizations to, to understand that interconnectedness, um, that deportation, people who have been deported 
are still connected to immigrant communities within the United States. So there's not an either or in this space. Uh, it's, it's a transnational uh, reality. And I think the, um, the other challenge that people, uh, or mentality that people often approach immigration with is this mentality of scarcity, um, of the, this pie is limited and, and if we give one piece, then, then that's one piece less that I'll, then I'll be able to uh, eat. And what we see in practice is this incredible space of abundance. Um, you know, I think about Bellarmine Parish, for example, in Cincinnati, Ohio, that chose to welcome in an asylum-seeking family. And they've just wrote and reflected so beautifully about how that benefited their community writ large. It wasn't just we expended X amount of dollars or, or X amount of volunteer hours. It was this has transformed us, this has invited us deeper into faith, this has given us so many new opportunities. Uh, and so I if we can think and, and be attentive from that posture, uh, I think we can, we're more likely uh, to be thoughtful and, and be humane when it comes to policy decisions. How has your work with KBI impacted you? What lessons or moments have stuck with you all these years? Well, it's more than lessons or, or things, it's people uh, that stick with me. Uh, you know, I still remember, I just, Last week, I was reflecting on a, a young man that I met many years ago who'd been deported away from his family in New Jersey. Uh, he was trying to get back to see his kids again. And when he tried to cross the border, he was forced to carry drugs. So the, the drug cartel uh, kidnapped him and forced him to carry drugs. And he tried to seek asylum in the United States. He was in detention for a long time, was un ultimately unsuccessful. Uh, and I still think about him and I wonder I know that his journey continues, um, but it's people like him that have have pushed KBI to grow and expand. Uh, he's, I, I can say without exaggeration, that he's one of the reasons that we now have a legal services partnership. <laughs> he was he was one of the people that kept that thinking about his story and know, and having accompanied him, pushed me forward through some of the obstacles uh, in setting up that partnership. Uh, and I can say the same for a woman who's. Uh, still in Nogales, who was um, prosecuted under Operation Streamline and was deported and is trying to settle and, and make a life in Nogales and struggling through those challenges. Uh, it's not, KBI isn't about our, our programs or our strategy. <laughs> Ultimately, it's about the people that we accompany. Uh, and it's those lives and those voices that continue to resonate within me as I'm making these strategic decisions. How does your spirituality and faith influence how you approach your work? So we, we at KBI are, are an unabashedly Jesuit and Catholic uh, organization, and I'm also very strong. Uh, I, I believe that my Catholic faith, faith is a center to what I do, so it's not, it's not just a, an addendum <laughs> to my identity, um, but I'm, I'm in this work because I believe that God has called me. Um, I believe that he's uh, invited me into this journey of love um, and of prophetic action. And so what that means is... is being uh, in a posture of constant discernment, a posture of, of constantly thinking, where is the good spirit? Uh, where is the evil spirit? Where, where, what is God's desire and how can we uh, follow the good spirit in this moment? Uh, because there's not, we don't exist in a space that's very black and white, where it's clear right, what the right answer is. Uh, it requires a lot of prayer 
uh, and patience and discernment uh, to even make decisions in the space that we're in. Um, I also think that being a person of faith and being an organization of faith allows us to be hopeful in a, in a special and beautiful way because there's, it's very hard to be optimistic <laughs> at the border. We've, we've seen a lot of uh, worsening conditions. I remember when I was maybe just a year or two into the work and I was getting frustrated with the lack of fruits of U.S. advocacy and Sister Ingracia, um, who's uh, our educational coordinator in Mexico, said, well, we've been advocating against kidnapping and for police accountability in Mexico for years, and things are just getting worse, not better. So it's hard to be an optimist in this work, but I think from a faith perspective, it's, it's easy to be hopeful. Uh, and hopefulness is this constant attentiveness to the signs of God's grace. Uh, it's what Henry Nouwen calls the discipline of joy. Uh, so it's believing that there's a light and that shines in the darkness and the darkness won't overcome that. And we, we don't just do that under our own energy as KBI staff. We do that in partnership with migrants who are also pointing us towards that light. And that allows us to be more sustainable in this work uh, and, and allows us to, to keep the big, bigger vision in mind even when we're in these individual struggles. KBI's 100 Days campaign. How else can listeners get involved in KBI's work? I will say KBI exists and we're able to do the the work that we do, as I mentioned, because of the support of a great community. Um, And there's lots of ways for you to be engaged in advocacy in our educational programming. Uh, But ultimately, we also rely on individuals' donations. Uh, It's the fact that we have funding (laughs) that allows us to hire a Mexican attorney. It allows us to hire a psychologist. Uh, Those kinds of staff salaries that uh, allow us to accompany more is thanks to the generosity of individual donors. Uh, so you can consider going to, to kinoborderinitiative.org and becoming a monthly donor. Uh, I was When I was in college, uh, after I first visited KBI, I just donated $10 a month. <laughs> and I've upped, upped my monthly contribution since then. Uh, but it's it, that was feasible for me as a college student who just was struggling through and, and, and working. Uh, and so I, I think it's feasible for all of us to contribute in some small way. Uh, and I'd also encourage those who have the, the time to consider becoming a volunteer with KBI. There's different ways that we, you can do that. We, we're, we accept, for example, remote interpretation volunteers. We're trying to promote more language justice and have bilingual spaces in which um, migrants and U.S. community members can work together on advocacy. And for that, we need interpreters who can join us virtually and help us with that space, uh, as well as the in-person volunteers that we welcome uh, for longer periods of time to help in humanitarian services or education and advocacy. Um, I could give a laundry list of other options, but I think those are um, some of the, the most concrete ways that today you could become involved with KBI. I, I talked about hope, but I think there's also a good deal of persistence that's necessary for our mission. Uh, and we're persistent because the people that have been waiting a year and a half here in Nogales are persistent. And the, the mom that crosses the desert five times to get, try to get back to her kids is persistent. And so even when we're not feeling particularly hopeful, even though we want to be hopeful, but even when we're not feeling particularly hopeful, we're determined and we're persistent uh, because 
we know that we uh, are invited to this work and that we know that all of you in the U.S. community, all of the people who are listening to this podcast, uh, have a piece of that work. And so I'd invite you to, to persist with us and, and to join with us in this work. If you want to support or get involved with KBI's work, we've put some links in the show notes. You can also check out our migration advocacy resources from the Office of Justice and Ecology here at the conference. AMDG is a production of the Jesuit Conference of Canada and the United States. This episode was edited by me, Megan Leach, with help from the conference comms team, Mike Jordan-Lasky, Marcus Bleach, Eric Clayton, and Becky Sindelar. And our theme music is by Kevin Lasky. Connect with the Jesuits online at Jesuits.org, on Twitter at Jesuit Justice, on Instagram at We Are the Jesuits, and on Facebook at facebook.com slash Jesuits. If you're interested in discerning a vocation with the Jesuits, visit beajesuit.org. Drop us an email with questions or comments at media at Jesuits.org and subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts.